All right, Romans chapter 8, if you've got a Bible, uh, it's only going to be in your Bible. Uh, there won't be any notes on version. so, uh, but if you want to use your phone, you can, version app or something like that. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is in the New Testament, about 80% of the way through your Bible or so, uh, and this is a letter from Paul to the church in Rome, uh, and that's why it's called Romans. And uh, so one of, the, one of the best books of the Bible, and certainly what I think uh, to be the best chapter uh, in all of Scripture. So we're going to continue our walk uh, through Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is week 7. Or, no, I'm sorry. This is week 8. we got one more week to go. Uh, excited about uh, finishing up this series. So it should be good. Uh, so we, we all know that, ca- that context in any conversation uh, is pretty key, okay? And one of my favorite things to do as a, as a parent is to try to teach context, uh, social cues uh, to my children. It's always fun. We always get a good laugh at certain things. I mean, I remember several years ago when, when my son, you know, walks out of the bathroom with no pants and no underwear, and he's got a bug bite on his bum, and he walks into our middle of our MC and says, Daddy, I got a bug bite. Uh, so, I, I mean, he, like, context is everything, right? So we, we need to teach some social behavior uh, to our children as to when things are correct, the correct time to do th- some things. So, like, we've had, uh, we, we have three older children, and now we have a two-year-old, and, you know, we pray around the table, and, and so he's learning that at the very end, we all say amen. His timing of that is, is, is kind of early, you know? So, like, so we're trying to teach him those things, because in the middle of the prayer, he'll just say amen, you know, just for fun. Uh, and so, so context is, is pretty key when we're looking in, in everyday life, and when we're looking into the scripture itself, Uh, So we're going to look at verse 28 primarily today uh, in Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans 8.28 is one of the most well-known pieces of Scripture in all of the Bible. You have probably heard Romans 8.28 spoken, read, said somewhere. Uh, It's a treasure. It's a wonderful piece of Scripture, beautifully read. Uh, One of the most famous pieces of Scripture in all the world. Now, there's a couple problems that belong to that um, because it could be read in a very cavalier kind of way, uh, and which means that it can be read out of context uh, because it's so well known and people might know it by heart, uh, they just kind of read it without the weight that it truly deserves. Uh, and also, you know, also one of these you know, well-known scripture verses that almost has this immediate impact into people's lives, uh, what we'll do is just look at the surface value of what it has to say and then move on very quickly without diving down into the depths of what it has to say. And what, when we do that, we tend to misapply scripture uh, and we, we bring it kind of out of context altogether. Uh, but here's the deal. I want to look today into this verse 28, this so familiar, famous passage of scripture, and I want to dive deep. We're going to parse this thing out. We're going to dissect it so that we can discern almost every piece of it. So it's, it's, we're going to dissect each little phrase in this verse. And I want you guys to really dive in with me into this scripture verse, because I think it's going to be fun. There are treasures to be found uh, within verse 28. And so that when you hear it, or when you say it, or when you have the opportunity to use it, uh, then you'll really kind of grasp and understand completely how to use it best. When is the proper context? What does it deeply mean? And I really, I really want you guys to be able to have this tool as a part of your repertoire of the scripture that you know. Okay, uh, so we're going to look <clears throat> at Romans eight. Uh, we're going to read. We're going to read through verse uh, thirty. Okay, so here we go. Read with me as I read aloud. Here we go. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Great passage of scripture. So let's dive into this. So we got Romans 8, 28. Uh, and we're going to look at some of these key phrases uh, throughout the whole text. So uh, if you've got a pen, you can write all over your Bible. It'll be okay. God will not be offended, okay? So it, it says this, and we know, here's number one, that for those who love God, that's the second phrase we're going to look at. We know, big phrase there, that for those who love God, phrase number two, all things, we love that phrase, all things, and then work together for good. Phrase number four. And we know, phrase number one, that for those who love God, two, all things, number three, and work together for good. We're going to look through those four specific phrases. What do they mean? What do they have for us? Why are they important? Okay? So, we're, so let's look real quick at this first phrase. And we know. And we know. Okay, first of all, we have to ask, who's the we? Who's he talking about? Well, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Rome. This is a real person writing to real people. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't some like grand idea in the sky. This is a real person talking to real people in real time. Uh, and so, and you can even see, if you flip a couple pages to Romans chapter 16, he lists a bunch of people in Rome that he's writing to specifically. So this is real people uh, in, in, uh, in the real world. Uh, and so he's, that's who he's talking about in we. And so who he's writing to is the church in Rome. Now, most scholars would agree that Paul is writing this from the city of Corinth on his third missionary journey, roughly around 57 AD, right? roughly around 57 AD. Now, if you're a historian, you might know, I didn't know this because I, I study it, that's what I do. Uh, so uh, you might know that the emperor Nero took over Rome in 54 AD. So in 57, he would have been Caesar at that time. And if you know anything about Nero, Nero was nuts. Uh, he was straight up crazy. Uh, in fact, he wanted a piece of the city for himself to build his own palaces and kingdom. He wanted a piece of the city. So he decided to just go ahead and burn down the whole city. I mean, that, so that's what he does. And then he blamed it on the Christians. So obviously in the city of Rome, the Christians were not well known because Nero at the time decided that he was going to blame all of the Christians for burning down the city. Then they began, then Nero decided, well, I'm just going to persecute them. And so you're talking about the, the Roman Christian church were used as fodder for the lions in the arena. Those gladiator movies that you guys have seen in the arenas, what they would do is they'd parade out a bunch of Christians in to be fed to the lions. And they, they would use it for sport and entertainment. Nero would also have these big old parties, huge parties. They didn't have electricity, so they had to burn torches. He found out that human beings burn really long and really brightly. And so he would put them up on pedestals and put Christians inside of cages and light them on fire so that they can light his parties pretty tragic. <clears throat> lots, of per lots of persecution. And so this is, this is the context in which Paul is writing this scripture passage. It's not Americans who are working eight hours a day wondering when they're going to go on their next vacation. It's a little bit different when we read things like, all things work together for the good of those who love God, for people who are dying at the stake or being burned or fed to lions. It's a little bit different. That's the we. <clears throat> you have to, <clears throat> to, excuse me, a little sinus problem here. Um, so so that's, that's the we, but here's the deal. He's also talking about, he says, we 
No. Now, this is in deep contrast to the couple verses beforehand in verse 26 and 27. Joel preached last week about how the Spirit helps us, and you can see, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for what? We do not know what to pray for as we ought. And so the Spirit helps us, and says that the Spirit himself intercedes for us uh, with groanings too deep for words. So it's just like what Joel told us last week was simply that there are times when there are no words. There are times when there is mystery and we don't know what's going on and that we have to depend upon the spirit to have knowledge about what's going on. And he will literally just groan for us and intercede before us for God. And so Paul comes back the, couple, the, the next couple of verses and he's looking at it and he says, and we know. So he says, we don't know what to say sometimes and the spirit's gonna help. And then he says, but we do know this. There are some things that have been revealed to us and we know. And the goal of this for Paul is assurance. He's assuring the Roman Christians that God knows what's going on, that all things are working for the good of those who love him. And so he's, he's, working, he's giving them some encouragement, giving them some uh, assurance of what's going on. So let's look at the next phrase. It says, for those who, uh, for those who, who love God. Um, for those who love God. That's his next phrase. Now this one, we're going to get in the weeds a little bit with. Okay, So for those who love God. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about Christians. That love, as we saw in the video, is the mark of a Christian. Now it's gonna get, we're going to get a little specific in a couple other verses. You don't have to turn here. You can look up at the screen, but he's going to get a little bit specific here. So he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 2 through 3, this is another letter of Paul. He says this, if anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone, there it is, loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, then he is known by God. So basically the mark of a Christian, someone, and we're not just talking about the like, grand idea of God, or, oh, yeah, I love God, kind of flippantly. No, he's talking about deep love, what we just saw in the video. Uh, Paul will continue uh, to look at it in this one. And, and this, is where, this is kind of the opposite, and this is harsh language, but this is true. This is the same author that wrote Romans. If anyone has no love, for the Lord, let him, this is tough, be accursed. So if you love God, then God knows you. You are known by God. You are his child. However, if you don't love God, here's the contrast. You are accursed, which simply means that you are on your way to an eternal death in hell. That's what he's saying. So if, if you don't love God, things are, things are not going to work for your good. One more scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, but as it is written, what no, no, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. I love that. What God has prepared for those who what? Who love him. That, we, that Paul is saying that there are things that God is preparing for us. We can't even understand the, the way that God loves us, but it's preparing for who? The people who love God. The people who love God. That's who he's talking about with, um, with when, when he's talking about Christians. Now, things get a tad bit 
tricky as we look into the rest of the passage for today in 29 and 30. Now, some of you who have studied the Bible and studied some theology, you heard some words in these verses that kind of perked up your ears and you're wondering, what's Charlie going to say about those words, right? And those words are here for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among the brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, for some of you, uh, you're, you're reading the Bible and you're like, what, what's the big deal? For others of you, you know what the big deal is because right here in this passage, it, com- it comes the, a large theological battle over how does someone become a Christian? What is the essence of salvation? And Paul uses words like foreknew and predestined. The Greek there means foreknew and predestined. So you can't get away from those words. We can't walk away from these words and say, oh, that's not what he really meant. That is what he really meant. It just, it just depends on how you're going to look at that, how you're going to interpret that, and the view of salvation that you have. Now, just to give you some context, I'm not going to dive too deeply here, but I do want to tell you that right here in this scripture passage, you have two kind of different points of view. There are some who look at this and they say, okay, the reason why God foreknew is because he knew the decision that people in their own free will chose. And that's what God foreknew. That we as a people have, that God has gifted us with human freedom and freedom of choice. And God simply just foreknew that that was going to happen. But we are the ones who have control of that and we have human free will. Now, on the other side of the argument are people who say, no, God is completely sovereign. He knows past, present, and future. He predestines and he foreknows because that's what he does. He already knows. And so they lean more heavily towards the idea that God is sovereign over all things, knows the decisions you're going to make because he makes them for you. And there's a little bit less of this idea of human freedom. And so it gets a little bit tricky because you can go through the scripture and this idea is all over the place. Does God have uh, sovereign power over all creation, past, present, and future? Or do, do people have human free will? It's a deep question. If you've never thought through it, my hope is, is that you will think through it because it'll stretch the mystery of the gospel for you. And it's actually highly exciting to talk through it. What I don't want you to do is get into ridiculous arguments about how that all works. And because we've had so many denominational splits and church splits over this particular issue, and it's not necessary. That's not the point of 29 and 30. Paul is not trying to create some giant chasm for the church. That's not what he's trying to do. My personal understanding of it is this. Do people have free will that God has gifted them? Or does God have sovereignty in all things? The answer is yes. That's the answer. That God in his amazing understanding of the entire universe, he does have sovereignty, but he has also produced this idea of human freedom and free will. How those two ideas come together and are logically coherent, I have no idea, but I see them in the scripture. My favorite hero in the faith is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he said this idea of God's sovereignty and human free will are like two lines on a train track. 
And they are going, they're parallel next to one another. And as we walk, walk down life, as we walk down the train track, it seems like those two things are never going to connect. But in the scripture, what we have are these railroad ties that continue to connect them and connect them and connect them together. And we can walk along these railroads, this, these railroad lines, and we see, here's the beauty of it. He said, we see into the future. And as we look down the line at eternity, as these railroad tracks continue into eternity, they come together in eternity future. And so Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, that's what it's going to be like. That maybe we'll never figure out this mystery of, this, of salvation while we're here but we can walk along those train tracks knowing that we can love those who have a different understanding than us and, and that in eternity we will come to know what God has planned there. So I don't want us to get off base with all that stuff, but Paul's simply trying to say here that he knows that God understands and knows and that we can make a choice to love him. So that's who Christians are, people who love God. Now let's continue. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, here it is, we're going to look at all things. Now, what is all things? Does he really mean all things? Because if you think about all things, there's a lot, and sometimes, and this is how we can misapply this verse, because sometimes we think that God is only working for our good when good things happen. And, and then sometimes when we're trying to comfort someone else, when something bad happens, we come up with this verse and we say, all things work together for the, the good of God, the good of those who love God, right? And so, but then we really sit and think about it, but there's a lot of messed up things in this world. There's a lot of sin, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of world, war, there's a lot of natural disasters. How do we get around this all things? Does he really mean all things? And the answer is yes, he does mean all all things. Look at this verse in uh, Romans eleven thirty six. later on in the book. He says, for from him, meaning Jesus, and through him and to him are, what did, give, me that, give me those words, all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's repeating the same thing. All things. And then he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, so let no one boast in men for all things all things are yours, meaning the church, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life. What's this next one? Or death. That's not supposed to be in there. Wait a minute. You got the apostles. That's good. You got Apollos. You got Paul. You got Cephas, which is Peter. You got these people. Those are good guys. I like those guys, right? You got life. But wait a minute. He just, he just said Death. He just said that death is part of what God has for us. That's interesting. And he says, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Can we live in a world where we understand that God is with us even in our death, that sometimes it's even possible that death is part of God's plan? That God uses all things to work and orchestrate for our good, even the bad things that happen, even the sinful things that happen, that God uses to work all things for his good. So he does certainly mean all things. Now remember the context. He's writing to the Romans. Remember the people being burned for parties? Think about it as they read that. Wait a minute. All things, even my death, even my persecution, even when I'm beaten up in the street for being a Christian, you mean that that's for, God is orchestrating that for my good? And that's what Paul's saying is, yes, he's using it 
for your good. So let's look at the next passage. He says, and we know for those who love God works all things together for our good. Now, is every, so a bit of question, is everything good? No, not everything is good. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying everything is good, deal with it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that God works and orchestrates all things together for our good. He's not saying that everything is good, but God works in his power and orchestrates all things for the good of those who love him. Most of you know the story of Joseph from Genesis. You have this guy who really didn't do a whole lot wrong. He was loved by his father, Jacob. He had lots of older brothers, and he was favored by Jacob. He was given extra special gifts and things. And so one day his brothers got really mad at him because he was the favored child. And so they took him, they beat him up, and they threw him in a hole, and they were going to kill him. One of them, somebody said, hey, let's not kill him, let's sell him. So they sold him into slavery. He ended up in a, in a rich man's house named Potiphar, who he did pretty well. He became a pretty decent servant in that house and uh, got into trouble because, uh, because of, not, of anything that he did wrong on his own. He was pursued by, by Potiphar's wife. And uh, Potiphar, he was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. And so he was thrown back into prison and he spent years in prison. So he's already been unjustly sold into slavery. And now he's unjustly put into prison and he's there for years and years Finally, he gets out into the, uh, in, to be a servant in Pharaoh's house. And he rises in the ranks and gets to be second over all of Egypt. Pharaoh promotes him and promotes him and promotes him until he actually is one of the, most, the second most powerful man in the world during that time. That's Joseph's spot. It just so happens that there was a famine in the land. And so all the brothers, they come and they seek him. And they, they seek, they, well, they don't know that they're seeking Joseph, but they seek out and they come to Egypt to look for food. And who do they find? They find Joseph there. They don't know that it's Joseph. And so Joseph kind of plays with them a little bit, but eventually he reveals himself to them. Later on in life, they're kind of coming to a place where everything is, is, is uh, coming to an end. Their father dies and they're struggling through what to do next and how they're going to move forward as a family and are they going to survive as a family, the people of Israel. And Joseph is there and they, they think that at the end of their lives that Joseph is going to kill them or betray them or, or make them pay for what they had done to him because he had lived such a terrible life. And there comes this amazing verse that plays well into Romans 8.28 in, in Genesis 50, 19-20. It says this, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that my, many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, do you think that Joseph, sitting and rotting inside of a prison, thought that? Do you think that he had that in his mind? Oh, this is going to work out for my good. Sometimes when we're in the middle of it, it's really difficult and really hard as we're struggling through suffering. But Joseph, obviously, at the end of his life, comes to the realization that maybe you did it for evil, but God was orchestrating all things for my good and it ended up to be good. So then you have, I mean, think about this. There's many other stories. Think about the story of Jesus. Do you think that it was good that Jesus was suffered and died on a cross? No, that wasn't good. God didn't like to see his son dying on a cross innocent, but was the death on the cross ultimately good? 
What do we call the day three days before Easter? Good Friday. Why do we call it good? It was the death of our, of our Savior. But it is good, ultimately. In my own life, um, uh, I uh, had the opportunity, I left a uh, church on our way to go, um, on our way to church plant. I felt, God, that we, we had to move our family to Charleston to plant this church. And, uh, and I had to, we had to sell our house. We had to raise a lot of money in order to uh, build this church. And um, we had to move to Charleston. And so uh, my father-in-law actually gave us the opportunity to come and live with him uh, and my mother-in-law and come and, and live in their house. And he was going to give me a job at his church. He was the pastor of a church. And uh, he was going to give me a job for nine months. It was kind of a temporary deal while he paid me full time to work for him, while he kind of did a lot of things in the church. And, 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 uh, and, uh, and so we really enjoyed that time. I was able to sell our house and I began to raise a little bit of money, but I was working really hard for him and at his church. And uh, four or five months into that, things began to go a little bit wrong. The people of the church began to reject his leadership and um, it, was, it was really, really difficult. They ended up, uh, they ended up unjustly firing him uh, at the church. And so that kind of left Adrian and I in a really awkward place uh, because I was also employed by the church and I was the son-in-law of the pastor. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was kind of tough. And even though we were only, we only going to be there for four or five more months. And I remember uh, they, they let him go and it was very unfortunate. There's a lot of details, but it was very sad and very frustrating. It was a lot of suffering. It was kind of like, God, why are you doing this? Um, and I remember uh, they told me, the personnel committee told me to come and meet them at, a, uh, at the chairman's uh, office, which is a funeral home. <laughs> you know, so uh, that was funny. Uh, and so I met him at the funeral home and, 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 and I said, um, we were having a conversation. They told me that I was going to still remain employed for the next several months uh, until we moved to Charleston. And I thanked them for that. And, and then I said, but you know, everything that I have been doing was I've been following the leadership of my father-in-law and uh, how do I work that out? You don't really like what he was doing, and I was doing all the things that he was telling me to do. How's, how, what am I going to do? And they, they hadn't even considered that question. And so they, uh, these two guys, they kind of looked at each other, and they kind of whispered to each other, and then, and then I'm just sitting there listening, and, and, and they, they just said, well, we really don't know, um, so just be in your office. And what do you want me to do? We're not sure. We'll let you know. And so for the next four months... This church paid me full-time to prepare for the church at Cane Bay. I didn't have to do anything there. Now, I, mean, I know that that was hard times, and I know Adrian's family still working through all the details of that. It was really difficult. But for us, it was really difficult too. But I don't know, you see and you look back and you see God was orchestrating that kind of thing for our good, for this church's good, so that many people might be able to reach the ministry of this church. It's tough. It's tough when you're in the midst of it. But we have to see that God is working all these things for our good. So here's a couple things that I want you guys to see um, uh, in this passage. So there's three things that he kind of comes out and he says, okay, what do, you, what do you mean by good? What are the good things that happen uh, through, uh, through this circumstance? What are the good things that happen? In verse 29 it says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, and here's what I think are the three things that he wants us to know, conformed to the image of, of his son. That's number one. So if you're looking for some application, here's the, here it is today. What is the good? What is he orchestrating? What does he want us to, to move towards? The first thing is this, is that he wants us to conform to Jesus. 
that all these things, good things, bad things, death, life, everything, is being orchestrated by God to conform us to look more like Jesus. That's why we're here. And so if we love God, everything that happens, the circumstances in God's sovereignty is conforming us to be more like Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. Is this for my good? Well, if I love God, that means that God is orchestrating this for my good. So what is the good that God wants me to learn from this? How do I become more like Jesus through this? How do I, when I'm let go from my job, how do I become more like Jesus like this? What, what happens if I lose my baby? Do, how do I become more like Jesus, right? These sufferings. What if I'm giving a raise? What if I'm given $10,000 raise this year? How do I become more like Jesus with my $10,000 raise? All things are working together for the good of those who love God. What is that good that he's allowing you to move closer to conform more like his son? You have to ask that question. Secondly, in order, it's a little tricky, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And what he means by that is that we're being conformed to the image of his son so that others, that others, that mean these brothers, mean these kind of future the future tense. The Greek here is this future tense of brothers, right? He uses the past tense in just a second, but he's using the future tense when he's talking about brothers. And so he's talking about this firstborn language and he's saying that many might come to know Jesus. That it is entirely possible that through your sufferings and through the, all the other things that happen in your life, that, pe- that people need to come to know Jesus because of, what, because of your conforming to God's son. Is it possible that your circumstances are going to help somebody else come to know Jesus? What brought you into this city? Did God orchestrate that together for your good so that other people might know Jesus? So that many brothers might become, might know Jesus as the firstborn, firstborn in their heart. And so I believe that there's things that happen in your life that have nothing to do with you. That God works things in your life that have nothing to do with you but everything to do with those who are around you so that they might see Jesus through you, so that they might know Jesus better, that they might be able to conform to who he is. So we think that it's all about us, that our circumstances are all about us, and we're incredibly selfish. Maybe God is trying to teach somebody else through us. Let's think more about what God has planned for us rather than how it affects us all the time. Last one, and I love this. And this, I'm not really sure how this applies, but I just think it's fun, so I'm going to include it, all right? I love this word glorified at the end. Anytime that Paul uses this idea of being glorified, what he's talking about is our future hope in heaven. And so, and so and what's fun about this is what tense is the word glory in here? What tense is it in? It's in the past. Is anybody in heaven right now in this room? I'm like, well, okay, no, you're not, okay? It's going to get better, folks. Okay, so here's the deal. But it's funny that Paul talks about heaven and being glorified in the past tense. Why? Why would he talk about being glorified in the past tense? As if it already happened. This is the assurance that Paul is talking to the Romans about, the people who are being burned and fed to lions. He's saying that your faith is so sure because of the love that you have for him. Your faith is so assured to you that you can already think, I'm already in heaven. 
that my soul is already, and here's, here's the fun part, this is one of the fun things that I've thought about lately, that God, who knows past, present, and future, and who is completely outside of time, can, get this, blow your mind, he can have a conversation with thousand-year-old Charlie right now just as much as he can have a conversation with me right now. That's weird. Why? Because God stands completely outside of time. He understands my salvation. He sees my future. He knows it. And so we can be assured of our salvation. If we love him, our salvation is sure and it is as if we are already in heaven. That's how sure Paul's faith is and what he's trying to communicate to the Romans who are about to be burned alive. And so we conform to Jesus, we make Jesus known, and we kind of hope and we are assured of our salvation. The last question then is this. All of it is contingent on this question. Do you love God? Do you love God? Not flippantly, not the idea of God. Do you love God? Because if you don't, all things are not working together for, the, for, for you. They're not. All the bad things of this world are not working for your good. They're not. They're working for your eventual demise. And so if we trust God, all of these things that happen to us work together for our good. And so my question is, do you love him? Do you love him? That ahava, do you love them? And, and so how we understand that is through that, that Jesus Christ gave his life on a cross so that we might be able to love God. We couldn't love God otherwise. And so Jesus gave his life for us so that, as a substitute for us so that we might know this love and that we might be gifted it. And so my hope today is that if you don't know the love of Christ in your life and that God loves you, if you don't know that love, I hope that you would come to know it that you would ask questions, that you would desire, and that you would just sit there in your seat and pray and say, God, I love you. I need to know your love. And that you would have conversations with others and you can have a conversation with me. I'd love to talk with you about how God loves you and how he desires to save you. And he wants your love and he wants your affection. And so um, folks, um, church, let's continue, the, let's continue to be conformed to his son. Let's continue to, to seek others and make him known. And let's look forward uh, to our glory one day that is assured to us. Let's pray. Father, you have gifted us with a, a love that we don't clearly understand. Um, it is so great and so grand that we uh, it's a mystery to us how much you love us. And so it's kind of even difficult to, to live in that love because it's so big and so grand. And so God, I, I pray that you would give us um, some picture of that, that maybe the overwhelming nature of your love would um, give us understanding towards how much you love us. Um, but God, thank you for working all things for our good. And I, I know that there are people in this uh, room today who are struggling through hardship and they're asking questions about why. Um, they're blaming others or they might even be blaming you. But God, I pray that they would help, that maybe this message was for them to understand that um, you're working. You're working, Father. And you're working for their good. So God, I pray um, 
that you would help bring wisdom, bring clarity. Um, And for those who are in trouble, God, I pray uh, that you would reach out to them and call them and call their affections to you. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you die on a cross for us. Um, You are such a gift. Amen.